Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Daniel, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Caitlin Cooper of the Basketball She Wrote Patreon and my go-to person on the Indiana Pacers and after their wonderful performance in the in-season tournament slash NBA Cup, whatever you want to call it, I really wanted to have her on not only to discuss the ramifications of that, and of course her analysis there is fantastic, but also taking stock of the Pacers roughly 20 games in and what's gone well, what's gone poorly, conversation goes in so many great directions, despite not being particularly long as is usual with Caitlin. So much great depth here. Episode is brought to you by Fan. FanDuel, fanduel.com slash Boston. New customers get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. I'll talk about that more later. Episode runs about 45 minutes, but lots of great stuff in here. Chock full of excellent analysis, as always, with Caitlin Cooper. So here we go. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me on again. Part of what I think made the in-season tournament fun, and I, I do think that this is a, it's, it's a difference and I'm thrilled to talk to you about it, is that in many ways, what the like kind of what this was was it was the rest of the world beating the Pacers, and that's something that you've done long before this. But I wanted to start with whether there was anything that you learned about the 23-24 Pacers or this roster long term from the in-season tournament games. I mean, I think it was really valuable for the Pacers on a number of fronts, not only because they had increased visibility and other players around the league got to have a taste of what it's like to play in this system and what the benefits are to playing with Tyrese Halliburton, but also just because they got a measuring stick, right? Mm-hmm. Like this team isn't one that has experience in the playoffs. And Tyrese has talked about going back to media day that his biggest takeaway from playing with Team USA was that he was tired of losing and that he wanted to have a chance to compete for something, which they gave themselves by going undefeated and and group play and then advancing through what I think was a row of pretty competitive contenders that people have pegged at the top of both conferences for the most part and especially that finals game against the Lakers I put on my blog today that I worded it kind of in a cheesy way with a Dr. Seuss quote about you know don't cry because it's over be happy that it happened and I definitely think that's how the Pacers should feel not only because they made it that far but because I think there's a lot for them to chew on and kind of continue to evaluate with this roster and what various areas of needs are. I really like the idea of a measuring stick and a point of reference and it's come up with a few young teams this year that are or, or teams that are just beyond what they've done in prior years so like the the Rockets and the Thunder and a few others and there is real value to that and and 
Sure, you play opponents, you know, like in, in your division. This was not the first time the the Pacers and Celtics played, much less the first time the Bucks and Pacers played. But you get information from that too. And I think part of what the in-season tournament provided was higher, usually higher intensity, sometimes even higher strategical nuance than you usually see in a regular season game. Definitely was not postseason for a lot of different reasons. But having something that's a little bit closer to that pin, I think back to the way that the Bucks and Celtics and to an extent the Lakers went after Halliburton on defense is like, okay, we saw some things that you don't always see in a regular season game. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even the Pacers themselves, after the game against Boston, Rick Carlisle, something I admire about him is he always gives his assistant coaches and his staff a lot of credit for their contributions and they're very collaborative and how they go about their game plans. And he had said afterwards that Jenny Busick and Jim Boylan and Mike Weinar had all kind of put their heads together and at halftime they came out with a pick and roll adjustment that they had not used the entire season until they came out of halftime because they felt like they needed to do it with how many I'm I'm adding commentary here with how many screen slips they are giving away up against switches and they kind of did something with a tag switch but like just seeing that type of an in-game adjustment and him giving credit specifically to Mike Weinar for how much he did on that scout to prepare for that specific game and yeah like what you're referencing that was the most from that Laker game that Tyrese has seen extended trapping and blitzing from the beginning of a game like even throughout the tournament you would have seen they played the Hawks when they got into the fourth quarter that was such a scoring bonanza the Pacers had gone to half court trap right before halftime but the but the Hawks did not go to that until the fourth quarter when they played the Sixers the Sixers did some face guarding and tried to deny him the ball on inbounds to force Bruce Brown and TJ McConnell and others to initiate but they didn't do that until after halftime like this from the Lakers was very much a message from the start of hey we're gonna force these other people to get involved and have to beat us we're getting the ball out of your hands which isn't something that Tyrese has seen from the very start of a game so definitely a heightened thing that he had to navigate around and it's kind of interesting too because you know he still finished with 20 and 11 and he's to the point now where that's like a disappointing game from him almost (laughs) it is and something that Halliburton brought up in the post game was how it is also different when you're getting that pressure from tall guys and the Lakers playing reddish playing you know if we want to get into Anthony Davis and LeBron they're they play a lot of big human beings and that you know, that mechanic changes it too. I mean, you see that. I remember Chris Paul one time talking about a ball denial that was coming from a six foot seven guy being different than somebody who's more your peer height wise. And Halliburton talked about how that affected him. Yeah, that's a big thing because he has a lot of size for position. And this is kind of a difference sometimes when you watch him and Jalen Brunson navigate against traps. Like it's very worth your while typically to trap Jalen Brunson because he doesn't have as much size to be doing like the jump passing and getting the ball out. But I felt like that was something the Pacers even had to adjust to as the game went on because after halftime you started seeing like some more empty ball screens from Bruce Brown and some of the guards versus sending Miles and Isaiah Jackson up to middle pick and rolls. And I felt for that exact reason because when you're bringing Anthony Davis up to the ball like that it's a lot harder to find passing angles for Tyrese and then you mentioned that with Cam Reddish that was kind of the first time since going back to last season when the Pacers actually played the Timberwolves I feel like the best player in the NBA who's given Tyrese an individual challenge was Jaden McDaniels and that's in part because 
Tyrese really likes to re- reject and go away from screens in general, but he definitely does that against elite rim protectors to try to get them on the wrong side of the coverage. So that's kind of what his process was against Rudy Gobert. The only problem was when he wasn't using the screen, he wasn't shedding Jaden McDaniels' length. So that even showed up in the first half against the Lakers. I felt a couple times with Cam Reddish where Tyrese tried to go to, you know, get to set him up to use the screen and go to the hard reject left to get to his three-point shot. And Cam still blocked two of his threes in that game. So, yeah, just having to navigate around the length has been a thing for the Pacers kind of all season in the games that they've struggled more against when you look at, you know, their lowest offensive rating and a half was against the Orlando Magic. They lost the game to the Toronto Raptors and, you know, so on and so forth. So that is becoming a developing trend. One of my favorite things about the Pacers, and this can go from Carlisle on down, is that they have been more open than the average franchise on the things that are giving them trouble. But also, I mean, Tyrese Halliburton, I think this ties together at least loosely that he has improved at his weaknesses a lot better than the average player. And so I, I think understanding what you what you do well, but then understanding what you need to improve to reach that next level is extremely important. And that's another reason why the measuring stick in this case looms so large is that some of those adjustments for Halliburton are going to be personal. Some of them are going to be team. Some of them are going to be personnel, just having different guys out there, different sorts of things. And as I said, this is not playoffs, especially when you get into like the seven game adjustments and the the intensity, though no back to backs in this, I think made certain parts of it closer in parallel. And so I have more confidence than I do in, in some situations that the Pacers will use this information positively. That doesn't mean there's an answer. That doesn't mean that it's going to be easy or fun, but knowing it is extremely valuable. Absolutely. And I think that even like just aside from tactically, one of the biggest adjustments that Tyrese made in that tournament and has started making to the beginning of the season is realizing that more of him is a good thing. <laughs> like mm-hmm. being being as pass first and deferential, he started to let go of some of that a little bit. That doesn't mean that he isn't still inclusive of his teammates. He was still very much passing out of a lot of those traps to try to get the ball moving. But, you know, watching him at the end of that Celtic game, it was a good blend of both, right? Because the Celtics had done a lot with cross matching, especially by that fourth quarter where I kind of wondered going into it, you know, how willing will they be to put Drew Holiday on Miles Turner to effectively use him as a pre-switch, especially because the Blazers had just done that a few games prior with Malcolm Brogdon guarding Miles, and it kind of took them out of their pick-and-roll. Tyrese and Miles are number three in points per chance as a pick-and-roll partnership in the NBA. Tyrese, number one in points per chance out of the pick-and-roll. If you can do anything that to disrupt that, you probably should, and I just felt like he found a great balance in that fourth quarter between either getting that matchup off of Miles so that they could bring Al Horford to him or noticing, hey, Aaron Neesmith can get a step on Al Horford in space or I'm just going to go get this isolation and, and, and you know do this myself, which wasn't something you were even seeing. And the 26 games after he came over from the trade deadline, it was like there were times when teams went to switching late in the fourth quarter where he wasn't getting shots up or you know Lance Stevenson might go 0-5 in a fourth quarter against OKC or the offense would tilt toward Malcolm Brogdon. This has definitely been just like an overall mental adjustment that Tyrese has had to make and how he's wired to play. And I do think too that like when I watched back 
some of that Lakers film, and I'm I'm guessing that Tyrese and the Pacers feel similarly. I think that they even left some meat on the bone. I mean, they sure. were within single digits in that fourth quarter, and some things that they've done in the past they didn't necessarily go to. It wasn't super helpful that Andrew Nemhard wasn't available for that matchup, not only because he's been their best defender against LeBron in the past, but also when they're trapping Tyrese, it's good to have another ball handler out there because another area that Tyrese has shown a lot of growth, in my opinion, is his... He's become more of a star because he's become more of a role player as well so that you can start possessions with TJ or Bruce Brown or Andrew and the Pacers would automatically, you know, use him as a stack screener or use him to set a wedge screen for miles so that he can pop out and get loose and get the ball back. And I felt like a lot of times in the second half, it was the reverse of that. It was, you know, we trust Tyrese as our playmaker in this high leverage situation, but now the ball is out of his hands. He never gets it back. And one of the other four players on the floor is having to try to, you know, isolate against LeBron or try to make a shot which in this particular game sometimes you can count on the Pacers to do that like when Buddy Heald goes 5 of 5 in crunch time against the Hawks in this game they go 10 of 41 from 3 it's a little bit harder just to get the ball out of the traps and hope that other people are going to are going to be able to put points on the board but I think that they'll still be able to go back and look at that film and and say hey we could have we could have done this better even if we don't ultimately end up making some roster changes down the road I love that you brought up the Halliburton kind of off-ball game because it is one of the biggest adjustments that players have to make from getting star attention. And it has been one of my biggest criticisms of various truly dominant NBA players, whether we're talking about James Harden and his peak, Luka right now, and myriad others that we could get into, of if one of the reasons you take the ball out of their hands is that if they're not diligent enough or however you want to structure it, that they're not getting it back, then you have fundamentally changed the possession. And Halliburton going more after, then not that he's perfect in this, the Steph Curry playbook of, okay, I'm off the ball, I'm still really, really dangerous, is so beneficial for not only his development, but for the viability of the Pacers offense, even in in these high pressure situations, even when they don't have those other high level decision makers out there. And of course, even better if they end if they have them. Absolutely. And I think that like that was in part why I watched the Team USA games as heavily as I did, because I didn't think it was going to be super valuable for Team USA to be playing Tyrese and Jalen Brunson a lot together at the same time. But I was like, this could be valuable for the Pacers when he comes back, because you're most likely when Jalen Brunson is out there with Tyrese, Tyrese is going to be the off ball player. Jalen's much more geared to score in isolation, whereas Tyrese can kind of slide around on the three point line. And at first in the friendlies, it was a little bit shaky, like somebody might drive baseline and he wouldn't drift to the corner or he wouldn't shake up from the corner then they get into the you know actual knockout rounds of that and you could see some actual development to start the season you definitely have I mean the Pacers help him out somewhat tactically which they like I said they didn't go to a lot of those sets in the second half they seemed more determined to rely on him more as the ball handler but like just you know using him as a cutter on a stagger he'll reject that become the stack screener if somebody's top locking him or you know if you're running a pin down into a handoff with him in the corner they'll have like buddy come up and set a turn screen so he can get a little bit more separation. Like they have several go-to plays to assist him in doing this. And I think that it definitely makes a difference when you're not just a star who gets off the ball and then deactivates when you have to be guarding that star all the time, whether they have the ball or not. I think that's been one of the biggest things that's kind of pushed the Pacers along in their half court 
um, jump in efficiency this year. For sure. And another thing that has really helped, you did a, a great breakdown, I think it was like a week or two ago, maybe it was even sooner than that, about Miles Turner. And yeah. Turner's growth as an offensive player has been extremely important as well because like the Pacers, they did add Bruce Brown. They have changed their personnel over the last couple of years. But I mean, you and I talked about this I think it was like six months a year ago about how another key thing that was going to need to happen was the guys they already have getting better. Halliburton is the centerpiece of that. And I mean, he's in the, at least he's in my MVP conversation now, but you also need players like Turner to grow. And that's not, in some ways it's especially on the end where they're less, their reputation is less stellar because becoming an all around player changes the way you affect a positive team. Yeah, I wrote about Miles after that win over the Bucks because he had scored so many points as the role man. And, you know, it is kind of strange in the year 2023 to be talking about how much easier it is to score out of the role against the Milwaukee Bucks than it is against the Los Angeles Lakers. But mm-hmm. alas, here we are. And I was just kind of comparing that, like, after watching Miles, he had like three dunks out of the role in that fourth quarter where it was just catch step dunk and really being powerful and playing with more force as he was moving toward the basket. And again, that's in part because of what the situation is with the Bucks defense. You can see a very clear difference between that and four years ago, but you can also see a very clear difference in the fact that Miles is actually rolling toward the basket, actually playing with pace and staying in tandem spacing with Tyrese as Tyrese goes downhill to make himself available for those pocket passes. The Lakers did a lot more, not only with blitzing, but pulling people in from the side to try to take those pocket passes away from Tyrese and make that more challenging. And of course, as it turned out, like I felt Miles played arguably one of the best games of his career against the Milwaukee Bucks and then followed that up on Saturday with probably one of the worst games of his career against the Lakers. Just very out of sync on both ends of the floor for a lot of reasons but overall like it's it's hard to remember when you're watching him in a game like Milwaukee exactly how awkward he used to be as a roller and that wasn't just because he was playing with DeMontis Sabonis or against a cross match with Thaddeus Young it was because a lot of times he would be a magnet to popping and like there was criticism at times when he played under the Nate McMillan scheme because he would pop so much to mid-range but Nate McMillan he would even comment like sometimes he wasn't necessarily making the right read where pop wasn't what he should have been doing when he was releasing from the screen like he didn't put a lot of pressure toward the basket so to see his footwork and the step the hop step that he can use getting out of those picks at times it's it's definitely been an internal development and I think on the whole Miles's defense I don't think has been quite to the same level that we've come to expect it this season but he continues to show improvements in his game even in year eight for sure. And I wonder about the defense and kind of whether there will be some regression to the mean, I guess we can call it in this case. But I want to discuss, to me, one of the other lingering stories with the Pacers. Nate and I have done a number of this on 15 and 60s and all that, and I've initiated most of that is the kind of the dynamics at the forward spot. So we really haven't seen a ton of Jarris Walker yet, but the big dynamic and their minutes are not necessarily mutually exclusive, but the play of Obi Toppin versus or not versus Aaron Neesmith. And I wanted to just kind of actually just start with an open floor to you of how have you seen the play of those two individuals so far? I mean, I'll go on record and say, I think that their best overall lineup is 
close to the one they were using last season, which would be Tyrese, Buddy, either Bruce Brown or Andrew Nemhard, Aaron Neesmith at the four, and Miles Turner, because you just have a lot more versatility defensively with what you can do there. Not only because you can throw Aaron like what he was doing in the fourth quarter against Boston, and he can he really competes against Giannis and, and Jason Tatum and those types of players, but also because you can put him on the five and then have him switch ball screens so that you're not having Miles defend in the pick and roll quite as much, and you can use his passive size around the basket. That's not really a dynamic that you can use with Obi Toppin. So in part, like it was telling to me when they went into the game that was going to clinch their group against the Atlanta Hawks that Rick Carlisle put Buddy Heald and Aaron Neesmith back into that starting lineup and said that he had even talked to management about it ahead of time and that Ben and Obi were going to come off the bench in that game. And as it turns out, Obi went back into the starting lineup after that. And I think that that kind of makes sense because Obi is enhanced by playing with Tyrese. So you want him to get minutes early on in the game as much as possible where he can be leaking out, catching hit ahead passes, catching lobs from playing with Tyrese Halliburton. But when it's time to get to the closing lineup, typically that's going to be Aaron Neesmith at the four spot for the reasons that I kind of laid out. And because, I mean, Obi shot the ball well against the Lakers, but Aaron shot the ball really well in catch and shoot situations this year, which adds to their spacing. And that was the reason why Rick said that he made the change, although I kind of suspect it had a little bit to do with how much the Hawks run power forward slip screens for Tyrese as a function of their offense and that Aaron was going to carry that a little bit better. But even when you just look in that game against the Lakers, like a point of frustration for me defensively was, you know, you have Obi on LeBron and they're running all those four or five pick and rolls between LeBron and Anthony Davis. And they have Obi chasing over the top on all of those, which I, I don't fully understand. Typically the pitchers have Obi and Miles switch in those situations. They obviously didn't want Miles to be switching and having to defend in space against LeBron, but I didn't really get why Obi couldn't at least like duck under and try to force LeBron to take a jump shot because almost every one of those almost ended in points for the Lakers if they ran that specific action. So I think overall, like as a summary, Obi definitely has a fit with the Pacers. And I think that they should in no way regret that they gave up basically pocket change to get him. And I think he's shown growth since he's come here on both ends of the floor. But I think that when it's time to get to winning time, you're probably going to lean on Aaron more often than not. And that's typically what they do. Plenty more to discuss, but first a message from FanDuel. Snap into action this season with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. That is $200 in bonus bets, win or lose. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there's no better time to get in on the action. The app is so easy to use, wide range of betting options, including spreads, player props, which I love, over-unders, and more. So visit FanDuel.com slash Boston kick off the NFL season. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL, must be 21 or over and present in Massachusetts. Hope is here. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling helpline ma.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support. Play it smart from the start. GameSenseMA.com or call 1-800-GAM-1234. My takeaways from Obi Toppin's season so far are pretty similar, where he has, to me, and it, there's, a, there's a lot of utility having a player in a different situation as an analyst, where you get to see, okay, what's the same, what's different? And not only is that a new franchise, but also he's starting, you know, he started 19 or 20 games now, and he 
never started more than 10 games in a season as a Nick. And even with sometimes they had injuries and everything else. And what this season has done for me is it has made me more confident, not only in Obi Toppin's ideal role and his value as a player within an NBA rotation, but it has also made me more confident while his game can change that he shouldn't be playing high leverage minutes as much against high level competition, or at least that you should be thinking about other people. And Neesmith has deserved that. And there theoretically, you could also address that by bringing somebody who's even better than both of them conceptually, if you can make if you can make that happen. And there are a couple reasons why. So Toppin, I agree with you on the synergy with Tyrese Halliburton, just like he did with the Knicks, there are times where his effort level in transition is phenomenal and where that reaps real rewards. And I mean, his individual efficiency this year has been appalling in a good way. Uh, 70% true shooting, though this is the lowest usage rate since his rookie year. And that makes sense. He is not only doing more of his work as a play finisher, but also the threes are falling at a are falling at a pretty good rate. The best of his career, thirty seven percent so far. And so all of that is good. And the 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 nature of Toppin as an overall offensive player, like he he gives you these things, and he's not taking as much. There are times when the when Pacers opponents are daring him to shoot, and he's making more of those than I expected him to. But he's still not you know not doing a ton of that. The challenge for me, and you brought up the the four or five pick and rolls in the Lakers game, that's a great one, is how limited he is in almost every form of defense. So I don't I don't think and incidentally, I think the first place I really heard this, so I saw it in the film, was Nate's wife, who's a yoga instructor, like his limited hip flexibility. Like yes. Toppin isn't a great switch defender for that reason, and he's been a horrendous kind of rim protector, help defender during his time with the Pacers, but you could argue overall during his time with the Knicks as well. And so power forward, while not the most important position for how for how a team defends, it can be a pivotal spot for scheme and for cleaning things up. And so that's why sometimes you see, I mean, the most extreme with this would probably be the Lakers with AD um, in the modern era, some of the best Giannis seasons where he was playing, the where he played a lot of four. And when... You play a power forward who doesn't really do either of those things well, you're putting so much more heat on the five, and you're putting so much more heat on the on-ball defenders to get things right. Yeah, I mean, I like that you say that about the hip flexibility, because it's almost at times like he has no hips, and that's the thing as a switch defender. Like, he's very good moving in straight lines and with his backward mobility, but when he has to move laterally is where you can get into a little bit more trouble, and this this kind of goes hand-in-hand with the fact that, like, the Pacers had almost a polar opposite defensive scheme from what they're doing this year, and there was one possession in the second half last, last Saturday against the Lakers that I felt like this is the epitome of this game, it's the epitome of this defensive scheme, and it's the epitome of this personnel, because Toppin is picking up LeBron on the T of the in-season tournament logo, so several feet outside the three-point line. Meanwhile, Anthony Davis is in the right corner, looking as though he might receive a wide pin down, and Miles literally has a hand on Anthony Davis in that corner. Bruce Brown has his back turned to the ball, focused on that off-ball screening action. Buddy Heald's at the left wing, kind of looking over at LeBron. And Tyrese Halliburton also has his back turned to LeBron, focused on his defender in, in that corner. No one has even a foot in the paint. Anthony Davis has made eight corner threes over the last three seasons. He's 0 of 3 this year. Most likely, he's going to curl that pin down and try to get to the rim, which was an action that they ran multiple times in that game. Yep. And Miles isn't sagging off of him at all. Meanwhile, Obi has no chance of staying in front of LeBron that far from the basket. LeBron and Anthony Davis combined for one three-point attempt in that game. 
And what ends up happening is nobody comes and helps. Nobody rotates. And Obi ends up having to wrap up LeBron on the way to the basket. And it's free throws. And, like, in part, the Pacers, you know, rank in the bottom five of defensive efficiency again. They're giving up a ton in the paint. They gave up 86 points in the paint in that game. And they're fouling nonstop. Like, their foul rate's right there toward the bottom of the league as well, in part because they're leaving people on islands like this. So that's kind of where it is at with OB. And, like, you can see it at other times throughout this tournament as well. Like, in the game against Boston just before halftime, something that was a little bit different is they've they've had some success with really small lineups in certain situations where the coaching staff's played, press the right buttons, and sometimes out of necessity they've had to do this too, where, you know, maybe some of the centers are in foul trouble or one of the centers is injured that night. So they're playing the Philadelphia 76ers, and it works out. So they play OB, quote-unquote, at nominal five. But really when he's out there at nominal five, Aaron is the the person fronting Joel Embiid or Aaron is the person guarding Kevin Love and that game against Boston just before halftime Aaron wasn't on the floor they went super small with Obi and when Tyrese was getting hunted like possession after possession after possession and part why that was so effective is because Obi was the five and Obi wasn't protecting the rim so he's had some small moments throughout the year like they're down in Miami and he actually had a very good game in the second game defending Jimmy Butler he stayed down on pump fakes he applied pressure in the post like you can point to a few individual matchups where things have looked better for him but it is hard to find the right role and I do think that that's largely why he isn't in closing lineups and I I think I've said this many times already but I I stand by it I don't think still right now that the Pacers have a starting power forward on this roster at least not by my estimation and for the reasons that you said I think that that still stands out as a glaring hole um, that they're going to need to address at some point. A glaring hole that the Pacers did address during the 2023 offseason was whatever you want to classify Bruce Brown's role as with Bruce Brown. And now we're about 20 games into his tenure with the Pacers. How are you feeling about it right now? I think for the most part, I still think that's a really good contract that the Pacers signed him to, and it made sense. They had to get to the salary floor, and the fact that they they have the team option, he comes from a winning culture. I think that they've mostly got what they want from him, and even in the second half of that game against the Lakers, like it is nice that sometimes you can see teams progress through a lot of different cross matches. Like Jakob Pertl was not for this matchup against Tyrese Halliburton when Miles Turner is the screener. So Darko's like, okay, well, we'll put you on Obi Toppin now. And Rick Carlisle is like, well, we'll just roll Obi Toppin. So then they're like, well, we'll put you on Bruce Brown now. And then that way you can sag off of him in the corner. And they're like, well, we can also roll Bruce Brown. So that's helped them in that regard that like a lot of teams have cross matched against Miles in the past and they haven't necessarily had a way to punish that. And now they have more answers for it. And like I said, when the Lakers were trapping, one thing that they went to was having Bruce as an empty side screener because his defender isn't going to be as tall as Anthony Davis so that you can get him in space. I did find it somewhat curious because he got into early foul trouble in that game and then he didn't he didn't play very much in the second half, which I kind of felt like they would go to playing Tyrese almost exclusively in minutes with either Bruce or TJ on the floor for some of the reasons I said before that at least you can use one of them as a ball handler. I think if I were to point out any potential like quote unquote negative with the signing, I might say that he probably hasn't been quite as sticky at at the point of attack as I may have expected. Although I think some of that probably speaks to the fact that the Pacers defend most pick and rolls two versus two, Mm -hmm. and he doesn't have as much help as he would have had in the Denver scheme in that regard. And then also 
just kind of maybe some of the impact on Andrew Nemhard. I think that the veteran contributions that they're getting from Bruce and TJ has meant that Andrew last year went from being, you know, a second round pick who went to being a key starter. And now I'm not always fully understanding why, even though Andrew's shot isn't falling at the clip that it is, that sometimes his minutes seem to get cut. And I don't know if I think that's in the best long term of the franchise, but if I was to point and like nitpick at anything, those would probably be the things that I said. Otherwise, I think mainly they've probably gotten what they've expected from Bruce. As of right now, the team option decision on Bruce Brown is one of the most compelling single player or team decisions that's going to come for the 24 offseason. And in part, that's because it will be an indication. Yes, there's no tampering or whatever is going to happen of how optimistic is Indiana with what they can do with that flexibility. That is a conversation that you and I make it into or we make it if we do, it's going to be at a later time. But Bruce Brown, I think he has given them broadly what they've been looking for and it hasn't solved everything, but he is having another capable player in the starting lineup in the rotation in general has made a lot of difference. And and I don't know whether that role will be filled by Bruce Brown, not only in 24-25, but beyond that. But I think it has been an object lesson and that the increased capability has made the Pacers a more dynamic, a more interesting team. And another player who I think merits discussion here, and I've I've levied a lot of criticism at him. I don't know if you if you've heard any of that, that recently, which is fine either way because we'll talk about it. Is Bendik Matherin and. There are certainly things that Matherin does does very well. I mean, his aggressiveness driving. There were some times where it, it really made a difference. Not only in in the Lakers game, he had that he had that big shot. Was that late at, right before halftime? Something like that, maybe in the third quarter. And my frustrations with him, in part, are that his let's call it his judgment with the ball in his hands can can lead to can lead to some frustration, and that. Defensively, and I, and I, I want to throw the idea out there for you, and I'd love to hear you either accept or reject it because I believe that you're the best person, best situated. There were times, especially in that Laker game, where he was ostensibly competing, you know, like guarding D'Angelo Russell or Austin Reeves in particular. But then, like, so he's kind of, he's near them, but he's not, ends up like kind of fading away or something else and not affecting the shot as much. And so I was positing with Nate, I'm like, I don't know if what's going on defensively with him, like there's a criticism that gets levied on guys that it's like, it's fake hustle. I don't know that that's true. My theory was that it's misdirected hustle, that he doesn't really know how to convert his athletic gifts into affecting the opposing ball handler, especially when he's doing that role. And I just wanted to see how you thought about that theory of it. There's not a huge sample size of what he did in that game against the Lakers, because in my estimation, the only reason he was doing much of that is because Bruce got into early foul trouble, picked up those two fouls, and Andrew Nemhard wasn't available. And right. then in lineups where Lake, the Lakers were playing Austin Reeves and D'Angelo Russell at the same time, he had to be guarding one of them. And it felt like whichever one of them he was guarding is who was going to be initiating the action. So like if TJ was on Austin Reeves, well, we're, we're going to let D'Angelo run this possession because that's where Ben is and vice versa. So I kind of felt like, like judging by his own standard, 
he was pressing up, like you're saying, closer on the ball, making sure that he got his leg up over the top of the screen much more than you would have seen, especially during preseason, where the Pacers are a team, like I said, who largely guard the pick and roll two versus two. And then if they if the on-ball defender gets beat by the time the ball breaks the free throw line, they are supposed to late switch with that guy, then veering into the legs of the roller. And a lot of times going from summer league to preseason to early this season, you would not even see Ben making that rotation. And there were a few times in the first half where Ben, you know, would go through the first screening action and prevent D'Angelo Russell from getting a shot, then maybe come back through another screening action. And like you said, I think some of it was like, okay, I I didn't always get why D'Angelo Russell, like if Ben's left his feet and he's in the air, you could probably be leaning into that and drawing a foul. Like, I'm not saying it was like great defense on Ben's part, but by comparison to himself, I thought it was a little bit better other than the fact of exactly what you're saying. Like, it's like, okay, you got through the screen, which is better in the sake of your overall screen navigation and what it's been since you entered the NBA, but now you've given up a driving angle to the basket or now you veer switched and you but you you communicated it instead of miles communicating it and now he's not ready to to defend d'angelo russell in space so the way that i kind of summarize his defense on the year is there's a lot of times where when he's involved in the initial action he'll have a very, very strong initial burst like what you're referring to he might really fight and deny the handoff and then it's like he's like my work is done mm-hmm. i can relax now and now that person who just didn't get the handoff is cutting right behind him to the basket and you can see that kind of off and on even in that game where I'm like what I just said, like he fought through the screen, but now he's giving up an angle for D'Angelo Russell to drive to the other side. And now the defense is in rotation because that corner defenders had to be activated. So for him, like that's kind of the on ball challenge. And then everything offensively and as an off ball defender for him is just processing a lot of the time. Like you can see it in scramble situations where, you know, the synapses just don't fire as quickly for him to find his next spot. Or if there is a domino effect on defense, he, he doesn't know where the next play needs to happen, where you can even point to some possessions this year, like when they're playing the Hornets, where there was some off-ball switching that didn't involve him, and you can literally see Andrew Nemhard like, pushing him <laughs> to where he needs to go to, to be in the right spot on the floor. So it is kind of, it can be frustrating at times watching Ben because like I wrote a piece after that game, the first win that the Pacers got over Milwaukee, which was, I felt the best game of his career. And he has those plays down the stretch where he's absorbing bumps from Giannis and he and Bruce are double teaming Giannis and he's getting steals and deflections. And he's, he's preventing Chris Middleton from turning middle over his shoulder and getting a post look and he has several plays like that where it's like you just want him to bottle it and it it doesn't ever seem to have carryover across multiple games it's like you'll see these inflection points you know one out of every three games and you'll be like okay maybe this is going to be a steady build and then it it never fully is so I don't think right now I think it's kind of like the same thing with Obi at times where you can see those those inflection points but when it gets to be closing time a lot of the time you're not going to be as likely to see Ben and Obi Toppin in the closing lineups. The other curiosity I've had with Matherin is that his free throw attempt rate last year, shockingly strong for a rookie. I think only Paolo Bancaro was stronger, 7.4 per 36 minutes. And that's dropped to 4.2, which that explains a lot of the modest decrease in efficiency that Matherin has done because he's you know, a very good free throw shooter and getting to the line. You know, those are points that aren't being converted necessarily into anything else. Is there anything that you've noticed 
as an as like an explanation for why for why that has shifted so dramatically other than small sample size yeah i mean he got to the line nine times against the lakers and i think it was somewhat helpful for him because they were facing that trapping defense and he can attack into tilted coverages which is probably why he was seeing as much play time in the second half as he was that being said, I haven't checked these numbers this week, but I have in within the last two weeks or so where he is seeing a higher rate of shorter closeouts than he saw last year. And he's definitely seeing a higher rate of help being present on his drives than he is last year, in part because he's he's not beating his initial defender because sometimes they aren't playing him super close. And I think that you could probably tell in that in the Bucks game of the in-season tournament, it's like what you just said about decision-making. That's where a lot of it goes back to for him. And I don't even necessarily think that that it's overthinking for him. I think it's just, you know, the processing of like him not, he'll catch the ball and he's so wired to catch and drive that it's like, okay, you're open. Just take the in rhythm shot. And instead he puts the ball on the floor, takes a dribble and now is passing it to a teammate where it's like, great, you, you made the pass, but the, the right play in that possession was for you to just shoot. Or, you know, maybe he catches a grenade at the end of the shot clock in that game and he tries to create a step back that's contested. Oh yeah, that, I remember that play. That play yeah. drove that play drove me crazy. Yes, like when his defender's giving him all the space just to take a quick pull up too and his his pull up to mid-range game still needs some development in that specific regard. His ability to adjust and change speeds, I think like in order to snatch back out of those crowds is something that would help him out at times as well. And then like sometimes he'll just be bringing the ball up in transition. He didn't see Buddy filling a wide open lane in that game. Like it's just it's I don't think it goes back to anything that he's doing in terms of what his bend or flexibility is in the air when he meets a defender. It's just that the coverage has changed now so that when he gets to the rim, his pass out rate is a little bit higher, which I give him credit for. But it's like when you're seeing more bodies, it's harder to be doing what he was doing last year, I think is is generally what it is on the whole. So it has helped that his his percentage on jump shots has started to tick up here a little bit lately although his three really wasn't falling in that game against the Lakers necessarily but like if that can turn around and he can be hitting the in rhythm shots that come to him I think everything else about his game is going to become easier because he is so dynamic playing out a triple threat if he can beat the first line of the defense he's not going to have a lot of trouble drawing contact and getting to the rim we know he can put pressure on the rim and finish it's just that you don't want him to be having to do it through this many bodies I'm going to be very interested in how the next two weeks look for Matherin just because of the just who the Pacers play with Detroit, Washington, the Clippers, the Hornets in particular on the schedule. And those are some teams where I think he has some advantages that he can play. And so what what do we see? Do we see some dominant performances, even if it's in more limited minutes? Do we see some growth there? And and as you brought up so well with Toppin and with Matherin, can you carry over some of those positives and kind of build those into your game and understand that some nights are going to be better than others. That is that is a part of it. But then understanding when you can get yours and when you can't. There are a bunch of other threads, as, as listeners know, and as you know, I, I'm fascinated by the Pacers. But the last one that I really want to pull on during this conversation is the backup center spot. And Isaiah Jackson, in part because of the absences for Jalen Smith, has gotten some of those opportunities. And there are not significant con- commitments for, for the Pacers for either one of those players moving forward. So the answer could be Jackson. The answer could be Smith. The answer could be neither moving forward. Do you have a personal preference right now and both for how the season goes and for whether either of them should be in the Pacers plans beyond the season? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit tricky when you think about it because Jalen started the year so strong. You know, was at the top of the league in effective field goal percentage, very, very low volume on threes, but was shooting the lights out of the ball from three. And he rightfully so earned that spot over Daniel Tice and Isaiah Jackson. But the fact of the matter is, is like, if he outplays his player option, then you're giving minutes to Jalen when you've already picked up the final year of Isaiah Jackson's rookie deal. And then Isaiah isn't necessarily getting consistent minutes when he's probably the more likely one to necessarily be here next season. Mm-hmm. So Isaiah, if he had been playing like he has these last few games during preseason, he probably would have been in a higher pole position for that reason alone. Like if all things would have been equal between the two of them in terms of them playing to their individual strengths, my guess is the Pacers probably would have been more willing to roll with Isaiah because they do have him under team control, whereas they don't necessarily with Jalen. I actually think like it's going to sound outlandish to say Isaiah outplayed miles in that game against the Lakers. I do not think Isaiah is a better overall center than miles Turner, but in that particular matchup, like the play that I just described earlier with Obi picking up LeBron that high in space, that exact same play happened later in that corner, that quarter. And you could see that Isaiah did not keep his hand on Anthony Davis in the quarter that whole time. And he's ability to cover ground and move from sideline to sideline. He moves like a gazelle and rotated over and got a weak side block out of that same possession. His rotation, to the rim when he's defending in weak side situations have been overall I think better than Miles Turner's have been where sometimes Miles is like if I can't get there with my length he doesn't even always necessarily been getting a hand up in some situations this season and Isaiah too slipped into space a few times out of those those traps and was able to get the ball and score I don't think it's always perfect for him it's something that's always been curious for me is that he's a right-handed shooter but he goes out of his way to finish with his left a lot of times around the basket Mm -hmm. and not necessarily with force sometimes with like you know, flip shots and other things that's like, okay, you could just use a quick drop step and go up with power with your right. And instead you're using a hook shot to go back into the traffic with your left, which is always somewhat of a curiosity. But I do think overall, like he was very key to them getting their win over the Atlanta Hawks in the in season tournament group play because the Pacers tried miles at a lot of different depths against Trey Young and DeJounte Murray in that game. They tried having him step out and hedge and Trey Young was just getting around the edge of the defense. They could not get any stops. So they're like, Hey, let's play Isaiah. Let's go to three quarter court trapping. We know Isaiah can cover a bunch of ground. We know that we can play him around the basket and just kind of use him as a fly swatter. And he ended up playing like 13 minutes straight until like for conditioning reasons, they ended up closing that game then with OB. But I don't know, like, I probably would always, because of what I know of a Rick Carlisle system, if Jalen was able to keep this up and they were able to retain him, I would probably generally lean toward Jalen because I know that Rick Carlisle values having shooting at the five position and being able to have that versatility likely would have helped them, especially with Miles Turner struggling in that game. Because if you can just clear out the lane and not have even necessarily been bringing ball screens to Tyrese and Tyrese could just be, you know, beating his defender in space and and benefiting from five out spacing, that probably would have been helpful, especially in that second half. But that wasn't really an option for them. So it's curious, though, because if you would have asked me this at the start of the season, I might have even thrown a dark horse out there and been like, hey, you know, maybe Jairus Walker can be a backup five. But I think I think we're pretty far from that currently based on some of what I've seen from Jairus. But I think if all things are equal, I would probably continue to lean towards Jalen just like I did over the summer. Since you teased it, do you want to give a very brief summary of what you've seen from Jairus Walker so far? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's Jairus has his moments, and I still really like his tools overall. Like, you can see how quick his hands are. He can rotate and move his feet very quickly. It's just, even when you're watching some of the Mad Ants games, he had, from a production standpoint, he shot the ball much better. He makes such quick, connective passes and, and has good feel in that regard. It's just that defensively and offensively, I guess the way that I would quickly summarize him is he still, he chases the ball a lot more than I expected him to on defense and fixates on the ball a lot more than I expected him to on defense from what I had seen of him at Houston. And those schemes are very different from what he was doing in college to what the Pacers are currently doing. And then offensively, his shot selection, I think sometimes can leave a lot to be desired where, you know, there's, there's roles for him where I, even with the Mad Ants, it's like they didn't have Alfred Payton to start the season. Isaiah Wong isn't really a table setter. There's not really any other point guard facilitating options out there. And you'll see Jarris having to do some of that where it's like, okay, I don't think he's probably ever going to be doing that with the Pacers. But like he'll bring the ball up the floor and this is going back to preseason and he'll take like a transition pull up too. Like that's probably one of the biggest dinosaur shots in the NBA, right? Like a transition pull up two without a pass or, you know, making some reads behind the three point line where it's like you'll see him take some mid range twos out of self creation where it's like that's probably not going to be your role when you slide into actually getting regular rotation minutes where I think he needs to dial some of that back and then. I've just been surprised. Like a lot of times fans are clamoring for this and I understand why, because he does have the tools there. He, he did some impressive things during summer league, making emergency blocks, getting steals. He has more length than other players on the roster. And this shows up in games like against the Lakers where the size issue is a thing, or they can't guard bigger wings. But to say like, Oh, they gave up 45 points in the fourth quarter of the Miami heat and, and the coaching staff's holding back Jairus. And why wouldn't they try Jairus? I don't think he's in a position right now where you can expect him to be a move, uh, a needle mover on that end of the floor. Like I have a possession of my timeline today where he was defending at the point of attack and the Pacers and the Mad Ants are having him switch there. He switches the screener and then he just like is standing there in space and not really guarding anybody and somebody just cuts right behind him. Like that's not somebody you're going to throw out there in in-season tournament minutes and and in games that they're competitive and when Tyrese wants to be winning as much as he does this season, that's kind of the disconnect. And before this year even started, that's why I wrote that Jairus is going to be a microcosm of the season for the Pacers, because if he's playing, it will likely be because the season didn't necessarily go as they expected. And it, it goes back to what's happened the last two years where it's development mode. And then you're okay with getting him minutes versus if they continue on the current track that they are, I think it's going to be hard to carve out minutes for him. Cause I don't really know who you're not going to play in order for that to happen when they have when they currently have this many quality guards on the roster and they clearly still want to be playing Aaron Neesmith. It is one of the most buzzkilly things that I say often, and the reason why is because it merits repeating it this often, is that almost no rookies are positive players. And there are plenty of reasons why, and that does not mean in any way, shape, or form that they will be bad players moving forward. Mm-hmm. I can go invoke De'Aaron Fox, not that it is definitive in any way. De'Aaron Fox was dead last in uh, whatever the ESPN's measure at that time was, um, the the play, the, their all-in-one black box thing at that time. I can't remember the acronym at this juncture, and that you know he, and then obviously he's had a wonderful career since. And they're almost never the solution. And the other element that fans often get wrong is this conflation between playing NBA minutes and developing. And it, there yeah. are, there are so many ways for players to get better. G League minutes practice time, coaching, what they do in the offseason. And 
it is and, and there there can be correlations like guys who don't get NBA minutes end up having weaker careers. But it's generally because the things that prevented them from getting NBA minutes were the things that prevented them from being the the impact level players. And it all kind of ties in. And so with with Walker, it's so tempting because of especially some of the positive flashes to go, oh, he could have solved those stuff. It's like, yes, but you can create new problems too. And yeah, but, go ahead. I was going to say, I think that some of this is probably tainted because Andrew Nemhard was so compelling defensively as a rookie. Sure. That he was somebody that you could throw out there and be like, hey, he just got a game winning stop against Tyler Hero. And he had all these really not just flashes, but carryover and compelling standout moments where, like, now I'm, I feel pretty comfortable. Like I just said, like, he was their best defender against LeBron last year as a rookie. So, like, for Pacer fans who actively watch that, they might be thinking, like, well, you know, he contributed as a rookie. Like, why can't Jarris do this too? And I think somewhat of it, it's that a lot has changed for the Pacers just from the beginning of the season because of, I mean, Tyrese playing like not just a franchise player, but in a legitimate MVP conversation changes what you're going to do as a franchise to an extent. Like the Pacers really haven't been in this position where they've had somebody playing at this level at the beginning of a season where you're having to kind of try to balance maybe what their reality would have been headed into this year. Because like the thing that I like to point out is Aaron Neesmith said at media day, like I'm going to be playing at the three this year. So I've prepared myself to be putting the ball more on the floor from above the break and being used as a ghost screener above the break. And as it turns out, he's been playing mainly at the four. But the fact that he said that led me to believe that what the Pacers expectations for the season were and what they were thinking of for Jarris Walker is that he would be ready to potentially earn and compete minutes. But with the way they've started the year and with the way Tyrese is playing, I think that alters your mentality a bit. It totally does. And I am extremely thrilled that the Pacers made the most to an, to an extent, we'll exclude the last game of of their of their opportunity in the spotlight. I'm so thrilled that other people have gotten to appreciate what makes Halliburton and this team so special. And of course, you have chronicled it exceedingly well as you have for years. So thank you so much for taking the time. Hey, thanks for having me on again. Really appreciate it. Thanks again to Caitlin Cooper for taking the time to come on. Whether you are a Pacers fan or not, at least consider subscribing to the Basketball She Wrote Patreon. I will tell you, I have never told Caitlin this, that I have a couple of different tiers in my inbox and I have one that like you could describe it as kind of like action items and Every single thing that Caitlin Cooper puts out goes into that highest priority box because I want to make sure I don't necessarily get to everything, but I want to make sure that I have to make a conscious decision on it at some point. And that's because I learned so much not only about the Pacers, but about basketball from her analysis. And, and I encourage everyone to consume as much of it as you can. So support Caitlin's work, first of all, that's most important. And if you want to support Real GM Radio, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe and download this podcast in whatever podcast player you you use. And that's particularly useful for Real GM Radio because it's never going to come out a specific time, specific day of the week. It's my availability. It's guest availability. That's just the way it's going to go. And if we're not in a podcast player, let me know. And it's not going to be me who fixes it, but I can pass it to those who can. You can also hope other people find the show. That's through leaving a rating and review, through social media, through word of mouth, whatever it is. We appreciate it. 
And then the most important thing for this podcast and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors for this episode. That is FanDuel. FanDuel.com slash Boston. You get new customers get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when they place a $5 bet, which is pretty fantastic. You can also check out my other work, Dunked On, Dunked On Prime, Going Strong. Nate and I did awards roughly a week ago, and of course, 15 and 60s and gamers, and we did a lot on the in-season tournament especially the later rounds of it, which was so much fun. And we are doing the NBA strategy stream for League Pass. That is going to be consistently throughout the year, but not necessarily on a consistent date. We'll have a calendar and other things. You should be able to find those on social media. I'll try to get better about mentioning it myself, even though my social media presence is admittedly limited right now. But we are going to be doing the next one is Knicks Lakers a week from Monday. So that's Monday, December 18th is going to be our next broadcast, and I'll try to mention those in this space as well. Also, Nate and I will be doing, at times, we'll be doing NBA Ricochet, like a kind of a bounce around, which typically will be League Pass games as well due to playbacks agreement with League Pass, which is pretty cool, and I love the tech there. So when we can do that, you can also check out my written work at The Athletic, both the pieces with my byline, and then you can read all my excellent colleagues. Sometimes my work is a part of that, whether it is formally bylined or not, because sometimes I only contributed a little bit, and that's, of course, totally fine. That's a part of my job description. If you have any feedback on Real GM Radio, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I do not promise to reply. I'd like to get better at it, but I do read everything. That is extremely important to me. So that's why I call it feedback. And that is enough rambling for now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. 